so I built a tool that could help with that. That was the first year. In the first year in 2021, I started the year with one paying subscriber, which was her, and I ended the year with 132 firms. And then we've been steadily growing ever since. Hello, and welcome to The Modern Consultant. I'm your host, Mark Ahrens, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Boucher, the founder of Decision Vault, a software as a service and SaaS app that helps legal practices, estate planning attorneys simplify the flow of data in their practice so that they can also have easier client intake. And in the space of just one year, he's gone from one paying user, his wife, to over a hundred legal firms. His story is incredible. So many lessons inside here for anyone who is thinking about going down the software as a service route. Also, reasons to not go down that route. If you are, say, a technical versus non-technical founder, uh, we also talk about his journey of hitchhiking through 22 countries and how that applies to the journey of entrepreneurship. Uh, there is so much for us to cover, and I can't wait for you to learn from Bouter, who has been a dear friend for over 10 years at this point. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you on the other side. Bouter, I just want to say welcome to the show. Uh, we talk practically, we've spoken, I think, like every single week for like, the last three years or plus. Um, and we've known each other at this point now for um, about like a decade, um, which has flown by. And there's all sorts of inside jokes that I could share there, but I'm not going to. <laughs> but for anybody that's listening, you know, uh, Bouter is the founder of uh, Decision Vault. And you will have heard like the full intro before, but to just get right into it, you have on one trip hitchhiked through 23 countries. And something that we were talking about before this was how that has influenced how you look at entrepreneurship. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. So um, in 2011, I hitchhiked from Amsterdam to Tokyo, which was uh, a nine month journey through 23 countries, uh, spent a month in, in Turkey, spent a month in Iran, went through the stands, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan. Um, and like, when I talk to people about that, like the, the first thing to maybe call out is that like hitchhiking works a little bit differently than what people assume. Um, like people, when, when, when you mention hitchhiking, people think, oh, like this scruffy dude standing beside the road in the rain that nobody picks up right it's like yeah sometimes you have to do that um but uh, especially in uh western europe where i'm originally from hitchhiking like goes a lot easier and faster than that because you just go from gas station to gas station which are right on the highway um you talk to people and then you get on your way right so like it's not really about standing by the side of the road and actually um, oftentimes when we were hitchhiking from Amsterdam to, to Berlin, we would be there faster than the train would get there. Uh, because like the Germans drive really fast on the autobahn and like talking to them at the gas station goes really fast. Um, the second thing to know about hitchhiking is that, um, it's 20% tactics and 80% mental game. So mm. like, um, I can teach you the tactics pretty easily in 15 minutes and, and kind of point out how this works, but then when you're standing there 
by the side of the road or when you're standing there at the gas station and you walk up to people and you get rejected again and again and again <laughs> like it's much more of a mental game where um like uh, and and that like you're constantly pitching you're constantly talking to people but you're also constantly um taking in new information so people say like oh what if it doesn't work it's like well just like in entrepreneurship, you try something for an hour and you ask like 50 people and maybe nobody is going the direction you're trying to go in. So like, how can you adjust and what can you do different to keep moving, right? Like it's never a, like this question always is interesting to me of like, what is it doesn't work? Well, I have the whole day. So like I'm keeping changing my approach until something works or like at some point, yes, I might hitchhike into the town and like take a train or a bus. Um, if it's like at the end of the day and it's getting dark, but that only ever happened like once or twice. Uh, most of the time, it's fine. You keep changing your approach. So that's definitely how uh, sort of that, the, 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 it has been good training for entrepreneurship where those skills like also are necessary every day, right? Yeah, there is a particular sentence you said in there that I just really wanted to hone in on, uh, which is, you know, it's it's the being prepared mentally uh, for change. Uh, and that really is like the underpinning of all anyone's entrepreneurship journey and especially yours. Uh, because in your own journey, I know that you have gone from uh, financial engineering to like consulting to to now uh, being the founder of Decision Vault, where you guys have now up to, I think, like 130 uh, paying subscribers. And I'd love to hear more about how you even begun that journey and got to the point that you're at right now? Yeah, so uh, Decision Vault uh, is an intake software for attorneys, right? So it grew out of my wife's law firm. Um, she's an estate planning attorney. And in the beginning of 2020, she had a matter in her practice where a client wanted to nominate 37 beneficiaries. Um, and uh, what that means is that like all the names of all these 37 beneficiaries like need to find their way into the document, right? And it's fine for the client to nominate whoever they want to nominate. That's part of the estate planning process. Um, but my wife at the time was a true solo. And what it meant for her was that she was typing all the names and all the addresses and all the phone numbers and all the date of births mm -hmm. into the next tool where she needed to like draft these documents. So that particular matter kind of prompted us to say, hey, there, there must be a better way. It's 2020. Somebody must have figured this out where you can have the client fill something in and just have that information flow into the other tools. Um, and as I looked into that uh, back then, I found that some tools integrated with some of the others, um, but the real limitation was on the intake forms to begin with. They were not good enough to capture all the info, meaning that like even if the tools integrated, that were to come to follow, um, you couldn't capture the information. So still you would end up entering all that info uh, yourself, which like is a administrative overhead that should just be avoid, avoided. Um, so that prompted me to start prototyping some, that, that prompted me to like start building some software. And as I spoke to more and more of her estate planning uh, friends, uh, I found like, yes, everyone is facing this problem. Uh, so I built a tool that could help with that. Um, and actually a correction to what you just said that that was the first year. In the first year in 2021, I started the year with one paying subscriber, which was her. And I ended the year with 102, 32 firms. And then we've been uh, steadily growing ever since. Um, so the, and, and that really, um, kind of uh, uh, 
lots of things came together in, in making it possible for me to like be able to like execute on that, right? Like mm -hmm. go through that journey, the entrepreneurial and creation journey of creating the software, um, including like the whole hitchhiking background. Yeah. So that's phenomenal. And uh, as you said that, like years of uh, Julia walking into the room um, and uh, fighting you for the printer um, are coming back to mind. Uh, it's fantastic. And now you guys have two printers. You've come very far. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's something else uh, in the journey uh, that I want to dive into, uh, which is before uh, getting the first customer, you know, because, well, before, you know, getting your wife um, <laughs> and the additional customers. But I know there are people who are listening into this who are at this juncture where they're thinking to themselves, okay. I could be going down multiple routes, you know, I could be becoming an independent consultant, you know, um, I, I could be leaving a big four company or, you know, I could be launching an information product as a way to be able to scale, or I could be going down the route of maybe even starting uh, software as a service, you know, developing an app. How do I even begin to think through which of these pathways I should be going down? Yeah. And, um, there's there's a couple things that come to mind there, right? Um, the, the first is uh, so I'm part of a community of of B two B bootstrapped SaaS founders, so like business to business, uh, bootstrapped meaning it's self funded. We don't have any investors. We just like funded this whole thing out of our own pocket, um, uh, and it's called MicroConf. Um, and and there's a good talk that people should should check out uh, called the the ultimate bootstrapped business or something by Jason Cohen. Uh, it's mm -hmm. on the Microconf YouTube channel. Um, and in there, I think what's important to to uh, when you're when you're thinking of potentially diving into software, to get the model right from the beginning, right? To get like if if there's anything you can build, um, then maybe you want to start building like in the right direction rather than something that that um, uh, will be harder uh, to get started on. So the first thing is you probably will want to do B2B rather than B2C, mm -hmm. right? Build software for businesses rather than building software for consumers. Why is um, that? Well, first of all, businesses um, are used to spending money to solve problems. Um, and consumers are really hard to get them to pay for anything, right? Like, just imagine Gmail trying to like charging wow. money for the Gmail app. Yeah. Um, like, that's probably not going to go over too well. Um, and that they have two billion users or something, right? <laughs> so, like, um, uh, like it's hard to get consumers to pay. It's hard to get in front of consumers. There's lots of um, there's competition there uh, with all the marketing that's going on. Um, so B2B is a better, uh, choice, um, especially if you're bootstrapping it, if you're going, if you have an idea and you want to go, uh, venture funded and, and you can make that happen, that works too, but probably you need venture funding to go after B2C problems rather than, uh, B2B, just like what I did with decision vault, you can solve somebody's problem you can get paid for that. Um, and like, as you add a couple more, um, uh, like the, the numbers start adding up of like how much money you're bringing in, which is sort of the second point you want to make sure you're charging enough. So like yeah. putting an app on the market at like five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks a month, that's pretty tricky, um, to, um, 
like make the economics work, especially if you're a non-technical founder and you're not doing the development yourself. So like I am a technical founder. I did the whole, I wrote the whole thing myself. Um, so that means that I don't have to go spend 50 to hundred K on like mm. the first version of the thing. Um, so if you have to, if you have to outsource the initial version, and then also if you have maybe multiple co-founders, then like you cannot do $19 a month. It has to be like 50, 70, hundred dollars a month, like just go for hundred dollars a month, which sets some requirements for what the software should do. Right. So it kind of, it restricts you in a way, but it kind of helps because now you have to think through like what kind of problems am I solving that are worth $100 a month for this business to solve through this piece of software. Um, so uh, that that kind of helps assess what the, the, the kind of ideas that you're uh, maybe thinking of to see if they are helpful, mm. if that's going to work. <sighs> You, so this is already in, insanely valuable, and it's also reminding me of a tool that you had shared with me that I actually found very helpful for being able to quickly build out a financial model instead of doing it in like a spreadsheet uh, to be able to just, again, come up with some basic math to see like what the structure of what it is that you're trying to build, if it makes sense, uh, profitability-wise. You remember the name yeah, of that? Yeah, uh, Use Summit. Um, yes. Summit, it's it's kind of like a, uh, it looks like a flowchart at first, um, and then you define a financial model, but sort of in a flowchart way, and then you click run, and then it actually spits out uh, a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. um, but what it does is it makes it a lot faster and easier to build up these sort of calculators for your run rate or for your growth. Um, like I I have a finance degree, um, I am very comfortable in Excel. Um, but, uh, it always takes so much time to change models around. And I like this tool because it helps to, um, to quickly, like, especially once you start changing and experimenting, it, it, it just, um, makes it a lot easier to move things around because in Excel, you would have to like change your whole thing and change mm -hmm. all the rows and change all. The, um, yeah. So that, that's indeed a nice one to kind of think through and model through it. It's really interesting like I always appreciate our conversations when we're we're talking about you know SaaS because I'm always learning and discovering parallels between that and the online course world, which is you know where I help a lot of my clients with with productization. But regardless of the business model, you're always needing to be able to do some kind of forecasting, you know, to see what expenses might be, always see what revenue might look like, see what you know customer acquisition rates and everything might look like. I found it helpful for that. Uh, and the other parallel between uh, the business models that um, I noticed is uh, I usually make a recommendation for people to start medium or high ticket for the similar reason. And there's also a case for going more a B2B route versus B2C because basically B2C means you're going to need volume. And if you're planning to bootstrap things, then it's going to take a lot of resources and time to basically build up a large audience regardless of whatever business model um, you're looking at. Uh, but that also reminds me about something else that I wanted to dig into with you which you also mentioned, which is you're a technical founder. What recommendations might you have for somebody that is a non-technical founder? And should they even be looking at SaaS, you know, as a potential evolution of their business model versus something else? Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll uh, 
I was thinking about that this morning, and I, I think I can uh, best illustrate it through a story, right? So in, in uh, when I came back from uh, the big uh, hitchhiking to Tokyo trip, um, I um, was hired by a sort of consultancy out of Brussels, and I moved to Brussels. Um, and um, I was hired based on my finance background, but I didn't really have anything in, in finance uh, for me to work on. But then one day, um, this one business manager pulled me along and uh, to a meeting at the main Belgian telecom operator, Belgacom. And I was, I, I came, I walked into this room and there were the, the two like hiring guys, the hiring managers were sitting there on the other side of the table. And I sat down and the guy uh, was flipping through my resume and my profile. And he kind of like, threw it on the table. It's like, okay, well, like, we'll just give him a case because obviously he doesn't have the experience. So like, we'll see how this goes. And then he like left the room. It's like, okay, this is great. And so they gave me this case and the role was to be a functional analyst. So functional analyst um, in that sense was um, the, 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 the person sitting in between and translating between like the, the business domain and, and the technical domain to decide how and what to build when it comes to building internal tools for this enterprise company. Um, and the case was about like, oh yeah, we need an app that does this, et cetera. So I drew some, some screens and I, I had some, some ideas on like, this is how we can model the database. And like when the guy came back, um, I like, um, I outlined that all for him. So for my business manager who walked into the room where the guy was throwing my resume on the table and then left to go have coffee downstairs, like that was his impression of like, oh, this is not going to go anywhere. When he came back into the room, the first thing that that the uh, the business um, uh, a stakeholder said to him was like, okay, this is great. He's hired. When can he start? Um, so th in that role, I was responsible for doing that translation and running these like improvements that like the business stakeholders needed um, mm -hmm. for uh, on the, the internal tools that the, the telecom operator was using. And as I kind of watched that process, I saw that business asked for something, we write it down in a descriptive way, words on a paper that goes to the outsourced uh, Indian developers. Three months later, it comes back, we show it to the business side and they rejected because that's not what we asked for. It's like, mm. That's exactly what you asked for. That's yeah. what we wrote down. We had all these <laughs> requirements, all these things that you wanted. Um, so what I started to do was, hey, okay, got it. Like I would take in and take a couple of days extra because it goes pretty quick. Um, if, if, if you, if you uh, do it in the way that I'm about to describe is I would draw out, I would take a screenshot of the current application I would then take a tool called Axure, A-X-U-R-E. Um, you can also draw these things out in balsamic mm -hmm. with a Q at the end. Um, and like what I would do is I would um, build up in just a click-through prototype. It doesn't do anything for real, but just click through what the business, what I had heard the business owner wanted. Um, and then two days later, I would book a meeting with them. I would put it in front of them. I would give them the mouse and they would start clicking on things that I had not anticipated. Um, but they were then telling me, oh, no, no, this is okay. I see this, but this is not what we want. We want it this way. So after three of those iterations, now I ended up with a click-through prototype that the business side like was happy with and could understand that it solved their need. Um, and then on the other side, when I shipped it off to um, like the outsourced developers, 
they would not have words on a page that they would have to like interpret. They would like look at this prototype and then they could build it much faster. So like that, doing a couple of those projects then made the business say, okay, great, you're, you got this. Uh, let's no longer do these 100,000 euro projects. Like we have this one bigger project of 5 million that has like shipwrecked. Like, why don't you go help solve that? So like when you, in that role, I kind of was acting like a non-technical founder in a way, mm. right? Like mm. I was not writing the code, but I was defining it in a way that like acknowledges that software is somewhat malleable. So like one of the um, like uh, holes uh, that non-technical founders fall in when they when it comes to making software is they try. It's very easy to describe. Oh, I have this idea. Like this is how it's all gonna work. But there's very there's many as you and I both know from like product creation um, uh, from the product creation process. There are many things that go into product creation, right? So like if you tr if you think you can just define it and write it down or like even sketch it out and then hand it off to build. That's a dangerous thing to do. And it's easy to waste a lot of money that way because like once you start having a piece of software, like there's so many assumptions that are in that stack of written down um, uh, statement, right? Like there's the problem solution assumption that like they want this solved in this way. And then there's also the implementation console uh, implementation assumption of this solution is implemented in this way. So like what I actually did when I put this into practice uh, and was building the, the first initial pieces of what later evolved into decision vault, I was writing, I was building like a little ugly prototype in like Microsoft Word where like, this is the report of how it comes out, right? I was writing some Python code that would like uh, push stuff into uh, an API and like, this is how it might sync over. Like I'm not building a product. I'm trying to test sort of what these pieces are mm -hmm. um, and then like um, take it one step at a time to see if that sort of fits. Yeah. It's you, there's so many gems in there from just being able to break down, uh, scope out, you know, the, the productization process, if you will, the job to be done there, which is, you know, and you mentioned about, okay, problem solution fit, you know, clearly defining what the problem is to be solved, which then also implies that you have a specific group of people, an audience segment that you're trying to serve, uh, who then have this problem or problem set of problems, and then what are the solutions that you're going to need to then solve that set of problems, which is different from the implementation um, of it, you know, which in, in my world and my language might include, you know, um, uh, conversations around, you know, the different kinds of product containers we might have, you know, a course versus like a workshop or a mastermind and how long it's going to be and what are the dimensions of the product basically to be able to help them fulfill it within the context of when and where they're going to actually be using it. All of that yeah, leads to, sorry, go I, ahead. Yeah. In, in, uh, in that story and kind of how I just ran through that, if I were to summarize that for a non-technical founder, I would say that like what we said earlier, it starts from Let's just say you're going to build software. Let's as a as a base uh, as a benchmark say it it costs a hundred dollars a month and it's for B two B right B two B. You can go out, you can find these people. You can like open the yellow pages if you can find one, <laughs> like and and like go find these people, go talk to them. Um, 
And like, if that's the, if that's sort of the, the baseline, that's the better word, um, then like, what should, like, what problem are you solving? But with that, and I, I was listening to the Margot episode um, uh, that you did uh, a couple of weeks ago, yesterday, mm -hmm. she mentioned the book, The Mom Test. Um, I, I forgot the guy's name, but uh, excellent book. Focus on that audience and focus on that problem that they're having. Not so much on your solution. Sure, you have you want to build a solution for them, but it's much more important to focus on that problem and look at it through the lens of like, if I'm charging them $100 a month, they probably should get $1,000 of value out of using this thing, right? So like, what, mm -hmm. what, is, what am I solving and is it worth it? Um, yeah. And then go into trying to duct tape some things together to kind of do it manually and kind of like build a, a, a first draft, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't need a developer for that, right? You can mess around with tools like Bubble or um, Glide, I think is a little bit easier, uh, accessible, no code platform. I would be really careful with building a full software as a, trying to build a real software as a service on top of one of these no code, code solutions, because scaling is hard mm. like, there's just lots of downsides that come with it but they're yep. phenomenal for you to just quickly click some things together and try to start testing right like you mm. can do stuff with zapier or make and like or just with excel or just like and the the, the uh, what they call the wizard of oz minimum yep. viable product of like it's it just yep. you behind the scenes doing these things and pushing these buttons and that's okay because we're not in this first phase you're not trying to build software you're trying to like validate that there's something there, um, like that there's a problem worth solving. Because yeah. if there is, then like, it, and it is like a hundred dollars a month, then that that brings in revenue pretty fast. Which means that you can spend money on like some outsourced help to like build the mm. software, right? But you need to first know how it'll work um, and uh, and how it'll deliver value. And then you can have it built. Um. This is really cool because there's like two threads in my mind here. There's so many parallels, again, between like the product uh, validation uh, process for um, software as a service, as well as uh, online course uh, and program development, because again, you want to be able to break it down into these uh, stages of validating the right things in the right order. Uh, because the, if, if you will, the audience is the independent variable. And then it's like, all right, now you want to go through, <laughs> make sure um, all of your uh, cascading uh, assumptions are going to be right so that you can ultimately uh, build something that is going to solve um, a problem, as you say, that's worth solving. The other thing within that, that I want to dive into is a bit more of how to determine which path one might best go down and maybe we even just dig in a little bit into your own story uh, what what made you decide to go down the technical founder route uh, of building software versus you know online course development because i'm pretty sure that there's going to be some people um, i have past clients i know for certain who actually considered the online course route as well and ultimately building and going down the service or SaaS route was the thing that got them to like a 1 million uh, run rate and so i'm curious to hear what your experience with that is yeah so i um when i came i came to the us in 2014 um and then for the first couple of years here i worked uh, uh in a consultancy with my brother-in-law 
Um, and we were doing some very different things, uh, like leadership development, uh, kind of offsites and facilitated um, events. Um, and just before the pandemic, kind of like the 2019 timeframe, that was kind of winding down. And I was looking to see like, what, what would I do next? Um, and I, um, I actually just was working on several things at once. I had like, I, I got my commercial drone license and I like, I was looking into like doing something with, um, uh, drone, um, photography, semiotic, uh, like the videography. Um, I, was looking into the field uh, called robotic process automation, which is uh, like little widgets that run on a desktop and can control a computer like a human does. So that's a way to kind of uh, automate really old software, right? Like if you have SAP, then um, like you can have one of these robots run on a little desktop and control the computer. So now you've automated in a way SAP without all the extra cost of building actual software that replaces SAP. Just um, one question for those who might not be familiar, what is SAP? Oh, SAP is like a, a big enterprise resource planning ERP tool, right? So like it, it runs like all the procurement and, and like the, the inner workings of big uh, um, Fortune 500 companies uh, typically run on SAP. Uh, it's like Salesforce, but then not for selling things to people, but like it runs the, the innards of procurement, um, like warehousing, logistics, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I was looking into drones. I was looking into uh, robotic process automation and I was looking into um, like th th this sort of helping Julia solve a problem in her law firm. And like, how can we do this smarter? Um, and I wasn't really trying to analyze and decide which one to do. I was just doing them, right? So like, I did one commercial drone project where I took like photos and videos of this like warehouse close by here uh, for like a friend of mine who does commercial real estate here in Denver. I like uh, got on several uh, calls and then through a fr another friend here in Denver, I was like looking to see how we could implement RPA into uh, like an HR company here. So like I was actually doing the things, um, but then in looking at, like these different test projects, it became clear that like uh, like the software as a service route would like ultimately be more scalable and result in a bigger business, right? Like mm -hmm. drones are great and they're fun, uh, but it's just me running around taking some like uh, photos and, and videos, but like that's kind of like hourly rate, like trading hours for dollars. Um, RPA kind of scales, but not as much as software as a service. Um, so I, I was not trying to decide up front. I've done plenty of this. When we first connected, um, uh, I, I like I was living in Brussels. I, I spent two years there and uh, I was going through all Ramit's material um, and I was doing a lot of planning, but not taking lots of action. So like I made all these plans and then was a little scared and didn't take enough action. And I kind of come back around to sort of see like, oh no, the plan was not good enough. So like mm. I, st I, I spent quite some time stuck in that loop back in the day. Um, so that's when in, in, in 2019, I was going through some of this. I was like acting first and then seeing what results I would see in the real world. Um, and then like based it on that. So Within what you shared, there was an implied statement I want to tease out, uh, which was actually about Julia. Um, and 
ultimately, you know, you started with an audience of one. And then you increased, you know, to a small group before now serving over a hundred, you know, uh, law firms. Could you talk about the importance of staging out and also testing uh, whatever it is that you're doing, whether or not it's SaaS, whether it's service, whether or not, you know, productization? Yeah, I think think a lot of people start with the audience of one being, I have this idea. This idea is amazing. I'm going to build this idea. Uh, When it comes to software, we all have these ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But it's different if it's, um, uh, if it's like, there's a person here and they're trying to do something like there's lots of frameworks and, and things around it. But like, it's really like, in this case, the profile was estate planning attorney. Okay. What are they trying to do? They're trying to create these documents in a way that doesn't take um, uh, so much time on, on manual entry. Um, so yeah, I, I firsthand experienced this because I was helping my wife uh, do some of these things. And then I spoke to several of her friends. So like it, 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 um, it is pretty uh, easy to go wrong when you're trying to too early try to like build up avatars, right? Because you're yeah. just hallucinating. It's it's fake. <laughs> like there is no person <laughs> like that. Um, especially yeah. if you try to do like there. There's all these 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 joke uh, article write ups about like the fact that they are a certain age and live in a certain neighborhood doesn't really determine why they just bought this or didn't buy this, right? So like mm-hmm. uh, behavior is a lot lots more important when it comes to avatars, but like the professional role, and this again is why I would nudge people towards looking at B2B, is like there's a professional, they're trying to do something in a professional capacity because they're trying to make like and deliver the value to their client and get a certain payout, right? So like Mm -hmm. that is taking them, either you can save them time or you can save them money or you can just make things easier for them and it's more fun. Um, But like, what is that thing? And then yes, like you, you can talk. I got the exposure easily because it's like somebody close to you. It was my wife. Um, and then she's in all like, I, I kind of got lucky in the sense uh, of, of the niche. Like she's in all these groups with all these estate planning attorneys and they all talk to each other, right? So then like, it's easy to connect with them if you like <laughs> have the personal connection. Um, and, but you can find them. They all talk to each other. So like word of mouth has been like the biggest um, like um, thing that's driving the growth of the business. Um, but like professional roles are much easier to find people into than it is to like go B2C and find someone who might be like interested in topic X, right? Like it's it's hard because you're competing now with everyone else who's marketing to consumers. Um, but if you want to find a plumber, like you can go on Google or you can go on the yellow pages, you can find a plumber or you might know a plumber, or anything, right? Mm-hmm. So like it, it's, uh, you can reach these people. You, there's two things in there that I really want to underline, uh, which I think is hugely important. It builds on one of the uh, ideas that you put forth earlier in the conversation, which is focusing on B2B versus B2C particularly if you're bootstrapping. And then if we build on that, uh, in the selection of a B2B market, regardless of uh, what uh, delivery model you're thinking about doing or what business model, there is getting clear on their identity. And in this instance, through their role, you know, and, and as you said, very easy to be able to say, okay, 
what what role, what capacity, what name uh, or category of you know business person this is. So you then go search for them and find them on whatever platform, whether you're doing cold outreach, whether you're doing inbound or whatever the case may be, finding groups. Uh, and then the second thing that stood out to me uh, was what is the job to be done? Functionally, what are they trying to do within the context of that role? Some people might just call it like a goal, but like using, you know, if we define it within the functional, what are the things that they need to do? It becomes very clear uh, and also measurable whether or not in ideation, you're focusing on the right thing. And also when you come up with the first prototype, whether or not your prototype actually accomplishes the function that they're actually trying to perform. So like, I think that's, that's really, really helpful, not just for like the SaaS world, but also for the, the world that I operate in. And I right. have many more thoughts, but I want to hit the pause button just in case there's anything you want to share on that. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I, I agree with those two things. Perfect. Um, so I also want to talk, we've, we've spoken a bit about the past. Uh, we've also spoken a bit about uh, the present, how you came to be where you are now. Where do you where do you see uh, Decision Vault going uh, in the future? I know you and I have spoken about you now zooming out to say like, okay, well, huh, this is like a real business. You know, how are you thinking about where you're going uh, and what comes next? Um, yeah, so like the the uh, the thing with the hitchhiking journey is that. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a little bit of a double-edged sword so it, it has made me um it has trained me very well for like okay there's adversity great like let's let's find another way let's find another way let's find another way um but the downside of it has, has been a little bit that um i am self-reliant to a fault <laughs> so the next uh growth journey for me is to um to like expand the team i just uh, just uh, uh, bringing on two new team members next week um, um, oh, nice. to uh, to like on customer success side and on some admin support for me. Um, that that will be um, like the next growth curve for for me is to like learn how to be a leader and how to work more through other people's efforts rather than um, just knuckling it out on my own. Um, and and then for the growth of the business, I. Uh, we're self-funded so we can grow at the rate that we want um it's growing very nicely um and we have plenty more integrations to build and 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 i because of the like i i uh i have constant conversations with attorneys and with clients so i know for the next two years what <laughs> what extra functionality and features we need to build like i don't need any more input on that um but then it's um it's also and it's maybe and that's one of the things that Jason Cohen touches on in his talk is like, I integrate with different tools. Like there's tools on the document automation side, there's tools on like the, the legal CRM side. Um, they like are in a massive competitor race um, because there's like nine or 10 or 12 of those tools. So they have massive engineering teams and massive like marketing teams. And like, they're just like cutthroat competition. Um, we're kind of working with everyone and we're sitting in the middle and there's like two other companies that do something similar to what we're doing, but in with a different focus. Um, so we're, we can just grow at our own pace and like have fun with it. Um, so that's the, that's the goal. That is one is really cool, but two, there's a, a there's a tiny decision point in there that is hidden that I want to 
like almost tease out um, that is really interesting, which is the hiring. You know, uh, you said the customer support a role and then also the uh, admin support role. And I remember in previous conversations that you were even thinking about, hmm, should I maybe hire a developer first versus these roles? And you mentioned, I think, a book that you had read that helped to uh, guide your thinking on which which roles to like hire uh, for first. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. So um, th this uh, it's uh, a book called Buy Back Your Time, uh, written by Dan Martell. Mm -hmm. um, and Dan Martell has a company called uh, B2B SaaS Academy. Um, so he himself has founded and exited several B2B SaaS companies um, and now is sort of active in the group coaching and direct coaching and, and, and courses world uh, when it comes to like getting founders to uh, build better B2B SaaS uh, businesses. Um, and his thesis of the book is that like he works with a lot of founders, typically people, and, and I was like kind of going down the same path, um, look at, okay, uh, what am I spending time on? Um, and like, what can I sort of like outsource and, and hire for? So people hire a developer and hire a marketer and hire like these different people in different roles with the focus uh, on like getting sort of all the business aspects covered. Um, but then what it does is that then the founder kind of does all the in-between stuff and ends up being the firm administrator. And then uh, he in the book recalls that he, like uh, Dan, oftentimes encounters founders at like the several million ARR uh, annual recurring revenue level with a team of like nine to 12 and they just hate it because mm -hmm. like, it's not fun anymore. They're just mm -hmm. like doing the in-between jobs. They're not focused on the thing that they are uniquely uh, good at. Um, and like that uh, is a path that then typically leads to like the person either self-sabotaging, selling the business or like closing it down, right? Um, so I was thinking last year about like, oh, like maybe I can go faster if I hire a developer. But for now, I've been a developer and the head of product and the person talking to the clients. And I've like, so I know everything from talking to the clients all the way through like knowing how the database is structured, right? And there's a competitive advantage in that because I can move so fast because mm -hmm. I don't have to have a meeting with anyone. I like start sketching out the stuff and like plan out what to build and when to build it. Um, so what's um, what I took away from that book is Dan uh, sketches out the ladder of replacement, he calls it. So like first, get rid of like the admin tasks, like stuff in email, scheduling, et cetera. And he calls them $10 tasks. Like it's not worth your time. Like get that first, then delivery. So like in, in the SaaS uh, sense, that would be like customer support, onboarding, et cetera. Um, then uh, handoff marketing uh, mm -hmm. and then like handoff um, like sales is sort of like one of the, uh, the fourth one. And the fifth one, I think, is like, then it's leadership. So if you want it at some point when this thing is grown to like take a step back and like have somebody else run the day-to-day -day as like a CEO. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm like focused now on taking that path rather than bringing on a developer, which is going to cost quite a bit of money. And then it would shift my role into defining what to build. But now I have to like go write that down or go sketch that out or go build little prototypes. Like that would fundamentally change like how I operate in this business. And I, mm -hmm. I feel like I would spend way more money than like 
on, on hiring a customer success person and uh, an executive assistant. Um, so I'm going that route first and uh, or going that route now uh, and that way freeing up time that I can spend more time on product development uh, and driving the business in this way. Um, yeah. So that is so helpful. Um, it's there's there's many parallels between that and again the online course and program world because ultimately you need a it goes back to what you had mentioned before we got onto that thread which is like you know people getting to a team of like 10 to 12 and then they they're in a role that they no longer personally enjoy and it's kind of killing their you know passion and stuff for the business um i i, I relate to that um in you know i at the stage of growth that we're at I'm wearing hats where I know I'm not the best. I can get it done, but I know that I'm not the best at it. Uh, and so it's giving me personal uh, insights as far as like how to think about that. Something else though that you shared in the previous answer was integration partners. Uh, could you tell us more about how you have gone about just even securing integration partners with who are basically the key players in your particular niche? Yeah, so um, like in the beginnings, in the humble beginnings, it's it's hard, right? Like you're you're kind of unknown, you're nobody. Like you show up and you want to build an integration with someone. Um, there are several tools in the space that are very set up to have many many integrations. So um, like one of them, you could I could just schedule a call and get on a call with the integrations person, and then they throw a developer account at you, and then you can go on your way and you can build it with them. Um, but there are others that like it took a year of follow-up and like introductions from like five mm. different angles before like <laughs> there was action taken to grant me access and like to then be able to then uh, build an integration. So typically with these integrations, um, I would need uh, access to that tool. I need access to the API. And then like Decision Vault is typically a consumer of the other person's or the other company's API. So like we're using their API. So it's no development effort on their end. It's all the development effort is on us, but they kind of need to grant access. So that's where, I don't know, it feels a little bit like hitchhiking sometimes. Like I want to go in a certain direction and like, I'll ask here, I'll ask there. And like, we'll, we'll just ask again and just follow up in a different way. And you keep going until you finally like get there. Um, yeah. it it makes me think about really just on a more meta level partnership because ultimately the integration partners you know they're 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 a bit of a delivery partner to be able to deliver whatever it is the the core value proposition is you know for the product and or service um, or course or program uh, it is that you're delivering and then that also that thinking then also extends uh to marketing partners and then also sales partners someone might be just doing direct referrals uh for someone to become um a customer or client and so then sales you know partnerships and then on the marketing side if it's just awareness for lead generation uh then you know again partnering with that person who perhaps has an ideal audience or a large audience or whatever the case may be but the underlying thread there is a willingness to play the long game, you know, where you might take like up to a year even to develop those kinds of partnerships, whichever one uh, makes most sense uh, for the kind of business model you have or for the um, function that you're actually trying to partner up with to increase the capacity or throughput for inside of the business. Um, it's, it's really elegant the way that you've um, done it uh, because you now have very, very pretty logos on your website 
And the moment yeah, somebody, <laughs> yeah. and, and that helps, right? So like in the beginning, there's like nobody, um, but mm -hmm. then now we're, uh, we're, we're, we have many integrations, like we're at 12 or something. And, and we have several more sort of in the pipeline of things that need to get built. Um, but then uh, uh, Decision Vault was, uh, took part in the, the American Bar Association tech show um, uh, about a month ago in Chicago. And I came in second place in the pitch competition there. Nice. Um, so that was helpful because like second place in the pitch competition and like, hey, look at this page on my website where I have logos of all your competitors. Like, do you want to also be an integration partner? Like that becomes a little easier conversation then, right? Hmm. Absolutely. You have also, in my opinion, you're a little bit uh, prolific when it comes to like this outreach stuff. Um, tell us the story of you, you did a challenge to yourself once upon a time uh, to reach out to, I don't even remember how many people in like how many days. Yeah. You, you got to tell that story. So when I was living in Brussels, uh, in Brussels is a town of the United the, the European Union, NATO, uh, and um, and of course, like just the, the the government of Belgium, and it's not really a startup town, right? So, mm -hmm. I uh, locally had been um, like going to some meetups and trying to like find some like-minded people, um, and then also through when I was in, uh, uh, I was going through RBT, I, I was in in Ramit's Brain Trust, the the, the online community program, uh, and through there I like set a challenge for myself to like in a weekend, reach out to a hundred people. And like, I kind of uh, increased with increasing sort of, I wouldn't say difficulty, but more of like the stature of the person, right? So like, um, I, as part of that, I reached out to you, right? Like you, you, were, <laughs> you were one of the ones in that, in that cohort. Um, I also reached out to Derek Sivers um, who uh, like sent me an email back. Um, so I, I think at the time I was reading uh, Nassim uh, Nicholas Taleb's book on uh, like uh, the black swan and fragility. So I reached out to some people to ask, like, they've mentioned something a lot online about that book, um, which was one part of the cohort of the hundred. Um, how did you implement that sort of in your day-to-day -day life? Right. So that was kind of my question. So I had a clear question and then I like brainstormed a bunch of people. I forgot where, like I, I maybe uh, the, that was the hardest cohort of like the top 20 of the hundred where somebody just posting this online and somewhat more of a prominent blogger. So I, I send this to you. I send this to like Derek Sivert. I send this to a whole bunch of other people. And then through that, when I came to the US, then like two years later, like we sat down for uh, dinner in DC mm -hmm. because I'd moved to DC and you were living in DC. Um, and like with Derek Sivers, actually like three weeks before I left Brussels, um, he emailed me back and said, hey, you're in Brussels. Like, I'm going to be in Brussels. Like, we should oh, have that's tea. Cool. So, like, I sat down with him <laughs> for tea and like we, ch we chatted about like travel oh, and whatever. That's awesome. so I was, yeah. So um, like little things you put like out in the world will come back mm -hmm. in some way. Right. But yes, that was kind of a, a challenge I ran on myself to like, um, get out of, um, Hey, I'm in Brussels. There's nobody sort of here. There's not that many people here that are interested in technology and building startups and do these kind of things. So like, who else can I like connect with? That is incredible. And for anyone that's listening and they don't, uh, or watching and, and they don't have the context, uh, Derek Sivers is, uh, the founder of, uh, this little, you know, um, uh, little tiny giant called uh, CD baby. 
um, from back in the day. And he's the kind of person who, you know, folks like New York Times bestselling authors like uh, Tim Ferriss would reach out to for advisory on <laughs> how to grow. So uh, kind of kind of a big deal. Um, uh, that, that, sir, is incredible. Um, and I know that we're coming up on time, but this is just a couple of rapid fire uh, questions uh, that I want to ask you, you know, that right. I think will be fun for our people um, listening in. So if you're not building um, Decision Fault, like what are we going to find you doing? Uh, well, yesterday I was skiing, <laughs> trying to get uh, one more day in towards the end of the season. Um, I'm trying to break in my new ski boots. So skiing, like I have two small kids. So like last week we went to Phoenix for spring break. So that was fun. Um, um, yeah. And I like, I, I, you're always nudging me to like fly more drones. Like that, that's been, it's tricky in Denver sometimes because in the winter it gets a little cold. And if there's snow on the ground, you know, we don't want to crash the drone into that. Um, and in the summer it's like super hot. So we're coming up on sort of the, the, the ideal window. So like, yeah, I have to fly more drones. And I think you were, I don't know if you're still doing this, but were you playing, were you teaching yourself to play the piano or was this a xylophone? I, I forget like which instrument like you were. Oh, piano. Yeah. Piano, I, piano, I, yeah. I, I grew up playing piano. I have an electric piano. Uh, lately, the business has been like consuming too much of my time to really get to that. But like, yes, that is, um, I would like to get, do that more. Um, mm -hmm. That's why that, the hirings, the, the new hires will probably help with uh, freeing up some time, not just for more product development, but also for a little bit more of that. Pianos and drones. Mm-hmm. 100%. <laughs> so... Um, I know folks are, there's a billion more questions I could be asking you, um, but uh, one of the fun questions I like to uh, start closing out on uh, is, well, there's really three. The first one is, what is one professional development book and one personal development book that you really have enjoyed, um, could be even within the last year? Um. Yes, good question. So personal development, I um, there's a book called um, Wink and Grow Rich, right? Mm -hmm. So like everyone knows the, the uh, Think and go, Grow Rich, uh, uh, Andrew, uh, Andrew Hill, I think. Um, Wink and Grow Hill. Rich, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's a parable and there's lots of lessons sort of hidden in the parable. So that one is, it's pretty interesting. It's kind of out of print. So uh, you can, you can buy the, uh, I think on the Amazon, they have the audio version. And then on the internet, you can find the PDF because there are some illustrations that they refer to. Like, look at this illustration in the book. And I, I had listened to it several times through already. And then I looked at the illustrations and they were like very different from what I anticipated them to be. Um, so that's a personal development book that kind of has had an, an impact uh, on some of my thinking around like uh, how to uh, build and, and, and expand both personally as well as in, like, in, in wealth sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, a professional development book, uh, well, the, the buy back your time was, was impactful and helpful. Um, so that, I think that would be a good one. Uh, if people haven't written, uh, uh, read the mom test, like go read that book um, because it'll help you. Uh, become better at like product development in general um, by by focusing on asking the right questions. Um, maybe I'll leave it at those two for now. Okay, I like it. This one's a little bit of a heavy one. If you could go back to before you launched uh, Decision Vault, knowing everything you know now, 
Is there any advice that you would give yourself? Uh, not really. Uh, I, I, yes, there are some things that like, um, part of the journey was me diving deeper into these web development frameworks. So like I would, I would make a couple of smaller changes, uh, or make certain cha uh, choices differently building it up, but that, that, that's just more related to like what they call technical debt. So you build something mm -hmm. a certain way. Now you have to go back and, and fix it or live with it. Um, no, I, I, uh, I think, um, um, I, it, it kind of just rolled in the right direction and, and like built out and I've followed my own guidelines for how to build products, even though I'm still sort of discovering what those are. Like that's, that's maybe a nuance to like how you mentioned it earlier, right? Like, mm -hmm. yes, there is a process also, if it was just a process, everyone could do it. Right. So like it, it, there's an element of taste that comes into this or an elephant of sort of an element of intuition. Um, like, yes, there are all these different frameworks and all these different books on how to do it and how to get started and which questions to ask and which ones to avoid. And that's all great. And that's all sort of knowledge level stuff. Um, but even if you stick to all, and do all the right, quote unquote, right things, it might work, it might not. And the difference is just like, I don't know, intuition, taste, like something looks good to some person, something does not look good to another person, right? There is an element of that to the whole journey of product development. So mm. I, in the past, may have gotten too hung up on like, I'm going through this the wrong way or like I'm making like these wrong choices or I'm not like, I didn't ask that question in the right way. Like, it doesn't really matter. Um, mm. Like what matters is that you ask the next question or like if you bomb like a customer interview to do another one and then try to do it better um like like oh there's maybe one other one that that maybe uh, uh that has helped in the past um years ago Seth Godin um did uh a uh uh, a, a day, an in-person workshop in New York, and it was recorded. Um, and it's called Startup School with Seth Godin, mm -hmm. and it's published on the Earwolf, um, like Ear, E A R, Earwolf podcast. It's like thirteen episodes, um, and in there, there's there's lots of good sort of general um, advice and questions to ask yourself as you go through like building something, right? One of the mm -hmm. things he says in there is like, we do it wrong until we do it right, right? Like it's fine that you're doing it wrong. It's okay. It's expected. This is what's going to happen. Hmm. It makes me think of uh, this statement that I've shared before, which is, you know, it's like you have the science of product development, but there's also an art to product development as well. You know, and artists, like you said, like there's an element of intuition, um, having an eye, and you're not going to see it until you create something and then get a chance to look at it and then decide what the next brush stroke might be or the next line of code uh, might be or the next module inside of a course um, is, is is what it's sounding like. Um, oh, that's, yeah, and, yeah, and the reason that you hold back is a little voice in the back of your mind that's telling you that it's like not working or that's stupid mm. or that's like it it was wrong right and it's the self and get like that voice 
I'm very familiar with that voice again from like the hitchhiking days, right? That voice tells you that like, there are no cars. This is stupid. Like, why are you doing this? And I, mm-hmm. I have uh, a, a talk on my, my LinkedIn um, uh, page or my profile where um, I tell a story of walking. Um, like I was in Kosovo in, in as part of this journey, I, I kind of like strung uh, uh, this route through several of the countries I was missing in Europe. And I, um, I, I, came down to Serbia and I, I spent the weekend in Pristina, Kosovo, and I was walking around town. And this was like the first, um, uh, uh, on this journey, it was me alone. And that was, I hadn't hitchhiked alone all that much. So like that, that was mm-hmm. the first time. And it was um, like an environment I was less familiar with you look over and you see white un trucks drive by Hmm. right so like normally you see those on the news of like places in the world where like it's bad news i was like oh i'm standing next to this white un truck um and i walked into the city park and there's like all these signs everywhere that you can't go off the path because there might still be landmines from the war that was there in in 1999 um so it's feeling like it was a little odd feeling a little fearful And yeah. in uh, uh, when it was time to move on and, and hitchhike south into Albania, I was walking out of town um, on Monday morning um, to the edge of town to start hitchhiking. And I had this like weird conversation going on in my mind where like the voice in the back of my mind was telling me that, that this is stupid. It's not going to go, uh, not going to work. Um, like nobody's going to Albania. And like all these reasons why things wouldn't work. But mm-hmm. I had done this enough where I could kind of, acknowledge that and just act anyway um and that's sort of like even after hitchhiking over 50,000 kilometers in my life like that voice is still there right the voice doesn't go away like that's just your inner critic that's what happened uh, but I kept walking and I got to the edge of town and I hold up a sign with like the there I had to do hitchhike by sign because of getting out of town um And um, I was feeling like an idiot, but it's the Balkans. Like it works. 10 minutes later, I was in a car. I was driving south. Like it, mm. it's fine. Um, but just that 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 voice is there and that voice will get in your way if you let it get in your way. Um, but it, it takes sort of practice to like, you cannot really like fight. You cannot engage with it. You cannot fight with it. Just acknowledge that it's there and try to do it anyway. And some days it works and some days it doesn't. And that's it. <laughs> That uh, is an excellent um, thought for us to uh, go home with. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And that is life. <laughs> and we can only do it again. keep moving forward. Yeah, yeah, right. absolutely. Keep, keep, keep chipping away. You know, and I just want to say uh, thank you uh, for taking the time to share your story, all of your expertise. And if we're wanting to find out more about you, where can we do that? Um, I suppose uh, either on LinkedIn or um, on uh, on decisionvault.com to see what I'm what I'm working on. I don't awesome. really use Twitter or anything else. Thank you so much. And with that, we will see you in the next episode.